Father, what a wonderful reminder it is that we stand upon Christ, and in standing upon Him, we do stand upon the solid rock. There's nowhere else where we can find life. There's nowhere else to find redemption. There's nowhere else to find forgiveness, the righteousness, a mediator, but in Him and in Him alone. And those are all the things plus more that you've given to us in Him. So as we look at Christ tonight, Lord, please uh, raise our, our gratitude, our affections, our love for you as we look to the rock uh, which we cling to, the rock that is higher than I. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 7 is where we're going to be tonight, verses 1 through 13. Um, the title of the message tonight is, See the Times. See the Times. Uh, time is an interesting thing. You just speak of it in, in simple terms. We use the word time in a variety of ways, don't we? You could ask the question, what time is it? And you're probably referring to, you know, what's the, what hour, what, what, even to what minute um, is it at any, any given moment? Um, is it lunchtime? That's one of the favorites around our house. And lunchtime is not a specific minute or hour, but it's really any time between like 11 and 1230, like is lunchtime at our house. It's a span of time. What time of year is it? That is even a longer span of time. You could be talking about the season, right? What time of year is it? It's wintertime. Or you could say, oh, it's postseason playoff football time. Um, we often will at times say, oh, I remember at a period of time in my life. And you're referring back to a, a period of time which could be composed of Days, months, or even years. Or one of, you know, the most well-known, the saying, the, the exclamation that takes place before really any boxing match, it's time, which is the culmination. We've been building up to something, and it's the time for that something that we've all been waiting for to happen. And so we use the word time everywhere from referring to a specific minute to an elongated season to the culmination and the peak of a particular thing. And the reason why I bring that up is because that's how I want for us to look at John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 tonight. Um, this word time, kairos, is mentioned four times in all of the book of John, four times, three times in our passage tonight. And so it's significant of what it is that we're being taught. Kairos can mean a particular specific moment, or it can also mean an elongated season. And I believe that when we look at time in that way from our passage tonight, there's some things that we can see and learn from our, our text. So John chapter 7, I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 13 tonight, and then I want to draw our attention to three 
descriptions of time that I'd like for us to see in the text. And I pray is helpful for us. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. I think when you read through a passage like this, at least when I was reading through it, one can pick up on the fact that it's not just about if or when Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem and attend this, this feast of booths or tabernacles, as it was also commonly referred to. There, there's more to the passage than just, is Jesus going to go up to this feast? Um, why doesn't he go up right away? Why does he go up later by himself in secret? And again, I think it's this idea of what we're being drawn to learn from the text regarding these three descriptions of time. The first is that we see that there's man's time. There's man's time. On one level, the issue is simply about their timing. The verses um, are about Jesus and if or when he's going to go up to the feast. So that much is obvious from the passage. We see this in verses 3 and 4. His brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing, for no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's your time. But Jesus says to them in verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always at hand. My time has not come to go up to the feast. You guys go ahead and go up to the feast. And after that, he remains in Galilee. But we see that man's time is also, um, it's about going public. They're thinking pragmatically and practically. They're goal-driven in this way. Man's, test, man's timing is always now. Oftentimes man, in our timing, we don't have God's perspective and his timing in view. Certainly the world doesn't think that way. In the world, the world thinks my timing is now. Man's timing is also a time of uncertainty, a time of confusion, and a time of fear. You see that in verses um, 12 and 13. There was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. 
but yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It's a, war, it's a time of uncertainty. It's a time of confusion. It's a time of fear. They don't know what to make of Jesus. They don't know who he is. He's not completely revealed and, and clear to them. But it's also a time of fear and that they're afraid to speak openly because of what it is that the Jews, those who are in authority, might do to them. As the world goes trying to make sense of him, so Jesus remains veiled in man's time. But it's also man's time is a time for aspiring to greatness, to gain it, and to go for it. And that's what they're encouraging him to do. You go up to the feast and make yourself publicly known. But as I said earlier, man's timing doesn't determine God's timing for anything. Man doesn't have the things of God and the concerns of God upon their mind. Man is practical, pragmatic. They're just looking at Jesus as, hey, this is your time. You go up to the feast, make much of yourself. They don't know who he is. And in man's time will never move God's timeline. God functions in his timing all the time. And it's perfect. So we see that there's man's time. Secondly, we see that there is the world's time made up of man-made motives and intentions, which we see in our text are opposed to Christ. Man's time is a time of death. The world's time is a time of death. Verse 1, he would not go up to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Men of the world were seeking to put Christ to death. The world's time is not only a time of death, it's also a time of deceit, a time of dishonesty, a time of betrayal. We see this in verses 3 and 4 as well. His own brothers, his own family relatives, his own blood, they don't even believe him. They fall into the same trap that we saw in chapter 6, verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The world can't see him. And so how do they treat him? How do they respond to him? They know that the Jews are trying to kill him and put him to death. And we know, in verse 5, that not even his brothers, not even his blood family believed in him. And what's their, what's their encouragement? Go on up to Judea. Go on up to Jerusalem. Go on up to the feast. The world's time is full of deceit, dishonesty, and betrayal. It's also a time of unbelief. The world's time is a time of unbelief. Not even the world, not, excuse me, not even his brothers believe in him. Seeing that they can't see that he's the Christ and they view him in a human and a worldly way. The world's time is a time of factions and division. We see that in verse 12. People can't come to an agreement as to who he is. There's divided ideas and thoughts about who Christ is. The world's time is a time of fearing man and those who would threaten you and lord it over you as the Jews did to the people. Ruling with, through fear and an iron fist, that's how the world functions. That's how the world rules. It's a time of jealousy. The world's time is a time of jealousy, a time of rivalry, a time of pride, a time of, a time of hatred, which we see in verse 7. 
Jesus tells them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world's time is a time of personal greatness, about publicity, about being made much of personally for you. Galatians 1.4 describes the time as the present evil age. Ephesians 5.16 tells us that the present evil age, that the days are evil in which we live and in which the world functions. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that the world lives in a time where the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep from, from seeing the light of the gospel over the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The world's time is a time of evil. It's a time of blindness. And we live in this time because his time has still not yet fully come. But then thirdly, we also see not only that there's man's time, that there's the world's time, but that there's God's time as well. And it's really marked by this idea of him going up to this feast at the festival of booths or tabernacles. You have to make sure that when you say booths, you say the T-H real well, or it's the, the festival of booths. All time is in God's time. Man's time, the world's time, Man's desires, the world's desires, are being played out in God's time, his season, his purpose for everything. It's interesting that it is during this Feast of Tabernacles or booths that was at hand that this conversation takes place. The, the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, was one of three pilgrim feasts that the Jews were to take. Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Festival of the Tabernacles, which those three holy feasts marked the time where every Jewish male, at least, would make the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths was one of three great pilgrims' feasts, and it was actually the last feast of the year that they would partake of. And it marked the end of their agricultural calendar. It, it, it's interesting the way that God has Jewish life set up and that it all revolves around these redemptive events throughout the Old Testament and that these feasts corresponded and correlated to a significant moment in time where God had come and delivered his people and he calls his people to come and worship him at these appointed times and, and their very way of life, of, of sustaining life, of growing their crops through this particular time of year was all marked by, by these feasts and these events. Their whole way of life, in other words, was structured and intended to remind them about God's plan of redemption and how he had been faithful to redeem them. Every time you go up to Jerusalem at the beginning of the harvest, you're going up for Passover. Remember when I delivered you out of Egypt. 
When you go up and you, to the, and you celebrate the festival of, of weeks, you're going up to remember my deliverance. When you're going up to the, the festival of the booths, of tabernacles, you're to remember how I delivered you out of Egypt. The whole calendar revolved around God's redeeming events in their life. And the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was the last of the major three that they would celebrate. And it took place five days after the Day of Atonement. Meaning, somewhere within the previous one to five days, they had just celebrated the Day of Atonement, where man's where their, their sin is atoned for through this sacrificial system. And in light of that, five days later, you go up to Jerusalem and you celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. And what everybody was supposed to do is they were to build a little tabernacle, a little hut made out of branches and, and leaves. Uh, they're on their roof or outside their home somewhere. And it was to remind them, this is how you, you, how you lived for 40 years in the wilderness. And it reminded them of God's redemption of bringing them out of Egypt. It reminded them of their 40-year wandering because of their own sin and disobedience. And it reminded them of God's provision even while they were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, which we see in De Deuteronomy 29.5, tells us, well, you were wandering in 40 years, for 40 years in the wilderness. Your shoes and your clothing did not wear out. How was that possible? I sustained you. I provided all that you needed, even in your disobedience. And so they were to remember what it is that God has done, had done. What I found really interesting is that in the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the ingathering not of crops that were necessary for life, like wheat and barley, but it was the ingathering of crops that came at the, the very last season, which was composed of grapes and figs and olives. Pure luxury items. Again, reminding them that when God provided and he blessed them, he not only sustained them and gave them the bare minimum that they need for life in wheat and barley, but God had done abundantly and incredibly more when he had brought them into the promised land. Gave them a land that they didn't till and they didn't work, orchards they didn't plant, homes they didn't build. It was a key, like, Move in, ready, complete land. And it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And this feast, they were to be reminded as they built their tabernacles, look at what God has done for us, but look at how exceedingly and abundantly more he has done for us as we gather in things like our grapes and our figs and our olives, things that we just get to enjoy, that just get to spice up the, the meal for us. It's a time of God's gracious and abundant provision. God's timing, as we're 
reminded of in the Feast of Tabernacles is a time of provision. It's a time of blessing. It's a time of plenty. Jesus would tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. God's timing is also a time of waiting. We see in verse 8, as Jesus is, tells them that it's not fully his time yet to go up to the feast. It's a time of planning and a time of fulfillment as well. As you look ahead and you see John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus does something significant and specific on the last day of the feast, which we'll get there, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But it's a time of planning. God's time is a time of purpose. It's a time of redemption. It's a time of fulfillment. You think about all of the things that we've seen, well, maybe not all, but some of the things that we've seen in the book of John already. The wedding at Cana, marking a time of fulfillment. Jesus turns the water into wine. The time of uh, John the Baptist and Jesus in chapter three, where John must decrease and Jesus must increase, marking a time of fulfillment, a time of transition from the old covenant way of life into the new covenant way of life because the mediator has come. The woman at the well in chapter 4. A new era, a new time has dawned as people will worship God in spirit and in truth. Not in this mountain and not on that mountain, but as the living water comes and they drink of it and, and, and abides in them. The healing of the man at the pool on the Sabbath day. It's dawning a new era. The Sabbath is fulfilled in the one that has come. The Sabbath's pointed to him. The worship services pointed to him. John the Baptist was the forerunner to him. All of these things are pointing to, there's this dawning, there's this age of fulfillment that's coming in God's timing, and it is upon them. There's the, 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 the festival of booths and tabernacles, that's going to fade away. Why do we not celebrate the Passover meal as Christians? Why do we not celebrate the, the, the festival of tabernacles? Because the Passover lamb has been slain and he's come and already tabernacled among us. It's all fulfilled in him. In some ways, Christ has pointed to himself in the dawning of the new era that's come in God's grand scheme and time of redemption. And it includes the feeding of the 5,000. You ate of the manna in the wilderness. I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven. Every single chapter in that we've covered in the book of John so far has a significant event that reminds us and shows us of the dawning of a new era that has come. And Jesus is going to be the fulfiller of the Feast of Tabernacles as well. They all have significance of the marking of the inbreaking of the new time, as 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us, upon us on whom the end of the ages has come. How can we speak of the end of the ages already coming upon us because of the dawning of the new era of Christ coming and ushering in the new covenant period? 
as I already read in Ephesians chapter 3, the revealing of the gospel, which was a mystery kept hidden long ago for ages, now revealed in the gospel that Paul preaches about the work of Christ. And then I think of Hebrews that we've already learned about in our Sunday school, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he, through whom also he created the world. We don't celebrate the Passover because the true lamb has been slain. We don't celebrate the, the Feast of Tabernacles because Christ is tabernacled among us. And it, it has all happened by his timing and by his doing. Do we live in the time of man? Yes, we do. Do we live in the time of the world? Yes, we do. But do we live in God's time in redemption as it encapsulates all of it? Absolutely. Yes, we do. And because of that, there is much to be encouraged by. Encouraged not to grow weary or discouraged, to lose hope as mankind, the unbelieving man in the world, goes about being opposed to Christ. We know that he has all of that within his sovereign care. And that God's time is always all the time. And we rest in that. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more song together. Thank you, Lord, for, for your word that reminds us that man has motives and desires and intentions that are opposed to you. The world opposes Christ because he testifies to it that its works are evil. And we as people share the same testimony because you have opened up our eyes to see Christ as the one who fulfills all of these things. So Lord, I pray that you would help us now to behold you, to love you, and to worship you in spirit and in truth for your glory and our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and